Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. My hope is that this next bit blesses you, but also challenges you. I also want to give a quick thank you to all those who have shared this podcast. Seriously, thank you. So much fun to hear from listeners and subscribers in Southern California, Alabama, faithful friends in Illinois. The shares have gone a long way. Thank you so much. Well, you notice on the title of this message, it's Reset Your Sex. Maybe you were a little hesitant to give this a listen, (laughs) or maybe it's why you decided to give this a listen. Whatever the reason, this is an important discussion. We got to have it. God has something in this next half hour for you. I know it. So hang in there with me. It'll be worth it. All right, let's talk about sex. In his book, uh, Swipe Right, which is a great book, by the way, Levi Lusco writes about the pineapple. The, the pine- and I got one right here. It's just a regular, ordinary, you know, everyday pineapple. And you are not impressed. You know, when I pulled this out, you did not go, ooh, or anything like that. Uh, it's just a pineapple. It's just a regular pineapple. But there was a day when you would have gasped if I pulled that out to, to see me holding a pineapple. I mean, you, your mind would have been blown. See, pineapples were discovered by Europeans in 1493. Uh, Christopher Columbus, and I know he's not Mr. Popular right now, but it is history. Uh, he discovered the Caribbeans, the Caribbean natives, were growing pineapples. And so pineapples were first, were first grown in South America, but then they were transplanted into the Caribbean. And so when Christopher Columbus's crew comes to the Caribbean and they see this, they, they're blown away. It, 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 it's shaped like a pine cone, but it's sweet like an apple pine apple. And so Columbus puts a few of these on a ship and he brings it back to Europe and everybody just freaks out. I mean, the kings, the queens, the celebrities, they got to have one. And so the ships, they start transporting them back to Europe and people are going nuts in Europe over these. They had pineapple parties at the time. Like the wealthy would buy a pineapple and they would pay, get this, in today's currency, they would pay about $8,000 for a pineapple. And they would grab one of these, they'd pay a ton of money for them, they would display it in their house, and they would have people over for a pineapple viewing party, and people would just come, and they would look at it. I mean, it was the ultimate status symbol. In fact, it, it started to influence art during this time. People were painting pic- pictures of pineapples. It, it influenced architecture during this time. When Christopher Wren, when he designed St. Paul's Cathedral in London, he put a big old golden pineapple right on top. Because it was a symbol of power and a symbol of prestige. I mean, the commoners, they could not get their hands on one of these. So much so that pineapple rentals started happening. Seriously, you could rent a pineapple. Well, not to eat. You could rent it for the day just to display it at your party. And at some point, you would have people over to look at your rented pineapple. And then you would would uncover it and people go, ah. I mean, it was valuable, it was rare, it was special. And this went on for a couple hundred years. They called it pineapple mania. That is until the plantations uh, started popping up more. Of these plantations started popping up more, and uh, the steamship made mass distribution more possible. And so now today, I mean, here we are today, you could just go to one of the 10 grocery stores in your area and pick up uh, one of these. Now you can get it in a little plastic fruit cup. I always wonder about these fruit cups. They they all taste like the same exact fruit in these fruit cups. But you can get a pineapple in a fruit cup. And these fruit cups, nothing to be admired, right? I I actually think they're pretty gross. Nothing to be valued. Nothing to be cherished. Nothing to be treasured. It's a a fruit cup. It's just, it's common now. Same thing has happened with sex. 
When God designed sex, it was extremely valuable, it was delicate, it was the coming together of two people, the the fusing of two people, a a treasure for the bonding of marriage. It was a mysterious treasure. But it has been mass-produced. This casual sex, I mean, the internet has, has blown up the sex industry to the point of, get this, the sex industry has more money than the NFL and NBA combined. Combined. Sex has now become like the pineapple. It's, it's mass-produced. It's something very common. You find it anywhere and find it everywhere. And as a result, it has been abused. It has been cheapened like pineapple in a, in a tropical fruit cup. Instead of bringing married couples together, sex has blown apart families, and you've seen this happen. It, is, it has created confusion It has created chaos. It has created addiction. You've seen it happen. It's hurting us. It's affecting us. It's infecting us. And we got to hit the reset button on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we find ourselves today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Really encourage you to grab a Bible, whether it's on you know, your nightstand or whether it's on a bookshelf or whether you got to grab your phone and pull it up on there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We're going to walk through this, this text together and then come out of it uh, with some practical application. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I just want, I want to say this too as you're turning there. The, here's the thing about talking about sex in church. I always get emails. I always expect to get emails when we talk about sex. Reason being is that we all view sex in one of two different ways. Some of us view sex as being a god. It's always on our mind. It's the end goal for a lot of what we do. And the other sees sex as being gross. It's just like that necessary chore that you just got to do in marriage. So you either see sex as a god or you see sex as gross. Both views are wrong. And so when I get up here and I talk about sex, I tick off both people. I tick off the people who see it as a god and I tick off people who think of it as gross. You know, so I, often what I do is I get emails from like a Nanny McPhee type of, type of woman. You know, like, oh, how could you talk about sex in church? You talked about it like it was great. And really what's going on is, is Nanny McPhee's sex life just sucks. She feels convicted, you know, sitting next to her husband, uh, talking about sex because their sex life leaves a lot to be desired, and so she's upset because she's feeling convicted. And then there's another group of people, those of us who feel ashamed, you know, where we're signing on, or like, should I sign off right now because there's deep regret when it comes to how you handled your own sexuality and, and what you've gotten into in the past. And I just want to say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we can have this conversation, and we should have this conversation. But the fact is, this is not the easiest topic. It can come with a lot of baggage, and it can come with a lot of emotion. But we got to talk about it. It is such a big issue. And when we don't talk about it, we mess things up. Our, our kids get really curious when we don't talk about it, and then they mess things up, and then, and then people just get hurt. And so we got to talk about it. Let's talk about it with grace. And let's talk about it the way that God uh, has designed. Let me pray before we jump into this. Father, we thank you so much uh, that we can uh, talk about something that might be very awkward for us, though it, it shouldn't. The way you design sex is a very powerful, wonderful thing. But we confess it is awkward for a lot of us. Awkward um, because of some pain. And so, Father, may your Holy Spirit just give us this, this environment, this, this grace in our heart as we hear these words from you. And may you illuminate this text to us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, well, hey, you haven't signed off yet, so that's, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I didn't know if maybe you signed off when I had my eyes closed. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms in, we find ourselves in a place that's becoming more and more familiar. It's actually starting to feel like home. We're in, we're in Corinth, Greece. The sun rises over the Grecian hills. It'll be a high of around 50s today. A, a light frost covers the, covers the, the ground. Uh, the, the light frost will be melted by mid, mid-morning, but until then, the, the cobblestone streets will feel a little, a little slick. The cool breeze coming off the bay feels great in the summer, but on a day like today, it's a little cold. But even with that brisk breeze, it, it doesn't stop the steady stream of sailors that make their way from the harbor to the temple of Aphrodite, seeking pleasure from one of the thousand prostitutes that roam the temple courts. Those prostitutes, many of them are wives, many of them are mothers who have their own families, but they volunteer here at the, at the temple to serve as, as a form of their worship. These same temple prostitutes on the temple courtyard, they're also hired by the wealthy in the city for various parties. As beautiful as, as, beautiful as this city is, it definitely has a perverted undercurrent. To sexual alternative society, monogamous relationships are very foreign, massive gender confusion. See, Corinth had a reputation. Throughout much of the Roman Empire, there was a joke. If you were sexually promiscuous, they would call you a Corinthian. Eh, you dirty old Corinthian. Or if prostitutes, if you were a prostitute, you were called the Corinthian girl. Eh, did you go and visit one of the Corinthian girls today? I mean, that's, that's the reputation. And so when you have a city like this, and this is historically true, this is sociologically true over and over and over and over, when you have a very sexually inflated society, what happens is the children, the kids get sucked into that perversion. This city is just, it's a mess. It's believed that STDs were so rampant that the city had, uh, various parts of the city had statues of body parts, both male and female body parts around the city where those who had STDs could go to and, and touch, the, you know, touch the, uh, the, the statue in, in hopes to be cured of their venereal diseases. Uh, sex is, in the city is just something that you did with anyone and you did it anywhere at any time. The gift of sex has ravaged this city. It has left it with disease. It's left it with addiction and just this darkness. It is really hard to stay pure here. It's really hard to raise a family here. It's really hard to do church here. Yet, in the midst of this sexual chaos, we find a little church, 50, 60 people meeting together. And they sit down and they read these words from their old mentor, Paul. Verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me. Notice these quotes. But not all things are helpful. Again, quotes. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Notice the quotes in, in this passage. All things are lawful for me. This is something that Paul would have heard the Corinthians say before to them. He's, he's quoting their words back to them. Likely what happened is when Paul was starting this church, they had had a few conversations with Paul about sex. Come on, Paul. What's the big deal about sex? Our whole city's doing it. It's not against the law. I mean, if two consenting adults come together, what's the problem? It's lawful for us to do what everyone else in town is doing. And Paul says, yeah, sure, it's lawful, but it doesn't mean it's helpful. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's healthy doesn't mean it's not sin. Some of the most addicted people, especially sex addicts, 
Some of the most addicted people are people who just give in to their desires over and over and over, giving in to their desires, and they've pressed further into that web, that sticky web, and they found themselves tangled up in addiction. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He says, sure, it's lawful, but just because it's lawful doesn't mean it doesn't lead to addiction, doesn't mean it doesn't lead to death. And we continue on in, in verse 13. Again, notice the quotes again in verse 13. He says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy one and the other. Again, Paul is addressing something that he's heard them say before. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. That was another way of saying sex is just a function. It's just like eating. Sex is just like sleeping. When we're hungry, we eat. When we're, there's sexual tension, we release it. It's just that. This thinking right here would become later on popularized, especially in the, the second century, by a false teaching called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, which is an underlying teaching today, it has survived, just uh, cloaked by different names. Gnosticism has survived today. It's in, it's in music today. It's in movies today. It's in talk shows today. You have heard of, you have, maybe you've never heard of Gnosticism, but you've heard its teaching. Gnosticism says there's no spiritual consequence for a physical action. So the body is completely separated from your soul. So when you have sex, you can have sex with whoever, however, whenever, and there is no impact on your spirit. Now, we know that that's not true. You ask any victim of rape or molestation, you ask anybody who's been taken advantage of uh, or, or in an unhealthy sexual relationship, they will tell you sex is not just a physical function. It did far more to them. There's more to it. It left an impact. And so in verse 13, Paul, he takes an aim at Gnosticism here, and then he says something very, very countercultural. Look at this. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So Paul is flipping their thinking here. Eh, food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for the food. Body's meant for sex, and sex for the body. And Paul just like Jedi flips it. The, the body is meant for God. You're not just a piece of meat. Your body and your soul are connected. They impact each other. Now notice here in verse 13, he doesn't say sex. He says sexual immorality. Paul is not putting down sex. He's, he's not pushing everybody to be celibate, though Jesus did say that some will be celibate. Paul's not saying that sex is bad. Sex is good. If today pans out well, I might have some. Sex is not evil. And Satan likes to act like, you know, he's got the patent on sex, like he created it, and God's like, eh, I got that patent hanging on the wall in my office. God created sex. It's a great thing. Paul knows that. He's not talking about sex. He's talking about sexual immorality. And here's the difference. The problem isn't your sex drive. It's when you let sex drive. Paul is not saying your sex drive is evil and sinful. It's not. God gave you a sex drive to bring you closer to a spouse. A sex drive aimed at marriage builds a good marriage. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll unpack that more uh, in a little bit. But your sex drive is an amazingly powerful gift. It is not wrong. It is not gross. Sexual immorality, though, is when you let sex drive. It's not aimed at marriage. It's aimed at fulfilling a thirst whether it's on the internet, whether it's inappropriate flirtatious encounters, one-night stands, affairs, you name it. 
Paul isn't trashing sex. He's going after what he started with. Don't be dominated by it. Allowing your, allowing your sex drive to drive you because sex in the driver's seat will always, always crash you. Now, verse 14 says that God has raised Jesus and so he will raise us. Again, he's saying your body matters. Your body matters. God's going to raise your body. Look at verse 15 though. Verse 15 says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Again, your, your body is not just a piece of meat. Paul is saying, if you follow Jesus Christ, your body is a physical representation of Jesus Christ. And so when people look at you, they should see Jesus. The way you handle yourself, the, the way you live your life, they see Jesus through you. You are a member of Christ. He continues, shall I then take a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. That's, I mean, that's a disturbing thought, isn't it? Paul's getting pretty edgy here. But, but Paul is giving the weight of this topic. If we are members of Jesus Christ, if when people look at you, they should see Jesus, then what we do with our bodies, who we join our bodies with, that matters greatly. He continues, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. I love this thought. So let's camp out here in verse 16 for a second. Love this thought. Paul is, taking the, Paul is taking the church and he's taking us back to the garden, back to Genesis, the first couple, the first sexual encounter, and Scripture writes about it. You know the story. Adam is very lonely and, and God has him name all the animals and so as, as Adam is naming all of the animals, he's seeing that all the animals have a mate. There's like, they all have, they're, they're created by twos, but Adam is not. And God says, oh, this is, this is not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. Let's find this guy a date. So God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and God creates Eve out of one of Adam's ribs. And Adam wakes up, and like, there she is. And in the original Hebrew in Genesis, God, uh, God calls Adam Ish and Eve, this new creation, Ish-ah. Ish and Ish-ah. Similar but, but different. Ish and Ish-ah. And Adam's like, Oh, when would you get here? And she's like, oh, I just got here a moment ago. And Adam's all excited. And we know, we know he's excited because he writes a poem. You know, I, like a guy's got to be excited to resort to poetry. And in scripture, the first Hebrew parallelism is used. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. If you translate that in the original Hebrew, it's apple bottom jeans, boots. No, I'm just joking. God right here, creates Eve out of Adam's rib. And Adam wakes up and is so excited, and God performs the first marriage ceremony. The two, Ish and Ish-ah, will become one flesh. God, God's, I mean, this is a quotation from God. God's talking about sex here. God knew what was going to happen when he brought Adam a naked wife. The two will become one and it's not like Adam and Eve after that were like joined by like flesh physically. They still had their own bodies. So how did they become one? The immaterial part of them became one. There was this mingling of, of souls in, in sex. A, a, spiritual, a spiritual tie happened. It's a, it's a very mysterious thing. The two become one. There was more than just skin on skin that happened here in Genesis. And so Paul's point here is, is if you're a member of Jesus Christ, if you're a physical representation of Jesus, don't join your body with just anyone, because that's a big deal. We're not just a piece of meat. 
He continues on in verse 17. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, meaning with the Lord. You think about that. The, the day you decide, and if you haven't yet done this, I hope you do. The day you decide to follow Jesus, that the day that Jesus becomes the master and Lord of your life, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul's already told us in Scripture in this, in this book, you have the mind of Christ. And now Paul is saying, and now you have one spirit. You have this connection. There's this oneness with your creator. It's an amazing concept. And it's this verse that drives the rest of what Paul has to say about sex here. It's because verse 17 is true, he goes on to verse 18. So since that happens, since you're one with Christ, flee from sexual immorality. Don't try to manage sexual immorality. Don't try to hide your sexual immorality. Don't try to flirt with it. Don't try to see how close you can get to it without being burned. He says just run from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What does that mean? Paul isn't saying that this is the most serious sin, though it can be the most serious sin, or it can be very serious, I should say. The point that Paul is making is this sin, sexual sin, is, is unique in that it's relation to the body. If you are one with Christ, you are, your joining of your flesh is very, very important. Again, he's saying you're not a piece of meat. You are sacred. Your body has a spirit. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your spirit is one with Christ. Continues on in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. And people have uh, quoted this verse to me before, you know, about tattoos. Like, they'll, they'll see my tattoos and they'll be like, how could you get a tattoo, Junior? Don't you know that your body is a temple? Like, I, I still don't get the point. This has nothing to do with tattoos. He's not talking about tattoos here. He's talking about sex. He says, don't you know that God, the Holy Spirit, indwells in you? You worship God with your body. Your spirit is joined with Christ. Your body is a temple. And I love the last line. He says, you are not your own. For believers, listen to me, for believers, it is never my body, my choice. My body, my choice. Believers have no right to say that because we are not our own. It's not our body. We no longer have these flesh and bones. They have been bought with a price is what Paul says next. He says, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Your body is just on loan to you from God. Your body is on loan. And, and he's going to want it back one day. And you look at, go back to verse 14. He says, I'm going to raise, he will raise you up. And God's going to take it back. Your body is just on loan to you. And just as you would hate it if you, know, you loan somebody your car and they trash it and give it back to you on, on empty, so God says, hey, here's the body. Please don't trash it. I'm, I'm loaning it to you. Oh, enjoy sex. I gave you sex as a gift, but don't trash your body with it. Instead, use it the way that I designed it. And I get how all of this sounds. I, there's, there's, a, there's a part of all of us, especially those of us who, who, who enjoy sex, there's a part of all of us who look at this and we just go, come on, God. Just like the Corinthian church thinking, come on. Sex only in the context of marriage? Are you serious? I mean, that's such a buzzkill. Come on, God, why are you raining on the sex parade? 
He's not. God, the designer of sex, shows us how to use sex to its full potential. God is showing us how to maximize sex without getting hurt. The problem is, is we look at, we look at all of this and, and we think, oh, pff, come on, God, just, God doesn't want me to have any fun. No, it's not that. Go to Menards, buy a nail gun. On the box, it's going to say, don't point this at your buddies and shoot them. You look at it, well, geez, come on, you're, just try, you're stopping us from having any fun. None of us would think that. No, box is helping us not to hurt ourselves and those closest to us by nailing everybody in sight. So that is with Scripture here. So let's get practical. To reset our sex, which we got to do, all of us have got to do it at some level, to reset our sex, three myths that we need to reject. Three myths we got to reject. Number one, the first myth that we need to reject is sex is just physical. This is a big thing today. Sex is just physical. Uh, when I was in middle school, there was a song by Bloodhound Gang where the chorus was, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. I mean, it's a really classy line to, to woo a lady. Uh, I would not, I would not uh, fellas, I would never uh, advise you to do that. It's not a very uh, sexy line. But, but you, can, you can see the Gnosticism in this, though, of, of, that, of that line. You and me, baby, we're nothing but mammals. We're just mammals. There's no spirit attached. So let's just do what mammals do. There's no spiritual impact to what we're going to do. It's just a body. I remember in sex ed class in high school, the teacher, she was 70 years old, wore eight pounds of makeup. She freaked me out. She loved talking about sex. She scared me into abstinence. But I remember her saying, I remember her saying, starting off the class with, sex is just a physical thing. This is something that's very screamed in our society right now. If it's just two consenting adults, as long as you don't reproduce if you don't want to, then go at it, whatever. It's just physical. But God says, no, it's not. Sex involves you at your deepest level. I love how the message version of, of the Bible puts uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Look at this. This is from the message. I love the wording here. It says, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much, look at that, spiritual mystery as physical fact. You don't just bring your body to bed. You bring a soul, and that soul mingles with the other soul, and a strong bond is formed. A while back, a guy named William Struthers did a study on the effects of, the effects of sex. Did you know that a sexual release triggers the same parts of your brain as heroin and cocaine? Same parts of your brain, which explains a lot of, of how um, it feels like a high, and uh, it can become an addiction. Brains during sexual activity release chemicals that heighten addiction. A brain activity during a release binds us to whatever caused that sexual release. In other words, whatever causes an orgasm makes us addicted to that cause. It's a powerful thing. God created this on purpose to, for, to, to become addicted to our spouses, to bind us in marriage, to drive us together, to form an addiction to each other. And when we think of this theologically or even biologically, it's obvious. Sex is far more than just physical. It's a powerful tool given to us by God to addict spouses to each other, to bind them together. And statistics back this idea up too. Couples that are regularly intimate 
they tend not to, to, not to sweat the small little annoyances in marriage, which there can be a lot of those, right? Couples that are regularly intimate uh, fight less, they laugh more, there's more of a connection, and, and, and they, they look over all of the little annoyances because they're one. They, they have this bond. However, couples that are not very intimate describe their, and again, this is statistically true, describe their marriage as being more frustrating. The small little annoyances get to them, and the petty fights start happening. There's there's not a drive to each other. This is why God gave us sex, to help marriages go more smoothly. And so Nanny McPhee, ready to write me an email right now, I'm talking to you. Don't hold out on your husband. He needs intimacy to put up with you. My email is junior at the bridge.church, by the way. Sex is far, far more than just physical. This is why sex before marriage is damaging. This is why porn, addic- porn creates addictions. This is why affairs blow up families, because it's not just skin on skin. It's not just a release. It's never been just that. It's the intertwining of souls. It's an addiction to each other. Sex is more than just physical. Schools today teach the kids, you know, have safe sex. But as, as, a, as a pastor, I'm telling you, there, there's no condom that'll fit over your soul. It is not just physical. Your soul is involved. That is a huge, huge component. The only safe sex is between a husband and a wife. I want to continue, though, in, on the, the message translation of, of Scripture here and, and kind of look back at, at these verses that we just looked at because, again, I love the wording so much. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, since we, have, since we want to become spiritually one with the Master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. It's, he's talking about the pineapple here. Something rare and powerful can become ordinary and dull. When you misuse the tool that God has given to you to addict you to a spouse, it becomes diluted over time, and it's no longer as powerful as its intended use. Now, I'm not saying it's not redeemable, but Paul is saying when you avoid commitment, when you avoid marriage and intimacy, and you see sex as just something that's just physical, you become lonely over time. And again, statistics back that up as well. Statistically, porn users have a much higher rate of depression. I am not saying that all depressed people are, are porn users, but studies show those who engage in porn tend to live more lonelier lives because they see sex as just, something, as just an activity and it, it, it ruins their spirit. A study on, on Tinder users shows the same thing. When you pursue sex as just a physical activity, you over time dull the spiritual component, that spiritual part of you, and you end up lonelier, as Paul says, lonelier than ever. Think of it like uh, last week, my, my daughter, um, she had this Band-Aid on, and it, it, was, her, it was her favorite Band-Aid. I mean, she, she loved this specific Band-Aid, heaven help us. And so we said, you know, it was the last one in the box, we said, you know what, this Band-Aid, you better keep it on as long as you can, don't take it off, because then it won't stick back on. And eventually she took off the Band-Aid, she started crying, because it, it just it wouldn't stick back onto her arm. And yeah, because the, the more you take it off and put it back on, the more that it grips less. Paul is saying it's the, same, it's the same with sex. It's not just physical. And treating it like that leaves you lonely and unsatisfied and just as thirsty 
as when you started. Myth number two, myth number two that we are to reject is I can do what I want and still have what God offers. I just need to sow my oats. I need to get it all out of my system. God will forgive me, right? Yeah. But God would much rather be using you than waiting for you to come around. And also, there's a big difference between forgiveness and consequences. There is forgiveness, but there's also consequences. And when you, when you see sex as something that's just physical and you engage it in, in the wrong way, you injure your soul, and that will complicate future relationships. You have no idea what God might do through you. You have no idea what God has for you. You have no idea what the, the plans your creator has for you. Don't throw it away. Like Esau trading his birthright for a bowl of stew. I love how Levi Lesko puts it. In fact, uh, this point just comes from, from his book. He writes, he writes this, Now screams loud, but later lasts longer. Later lasts longer. You can go for the now. And there is forgiveness, yes. But it complicates the later, and later lasts longer. Also, you never get anything out of your system. Don't believe that lie. You just need to get out of your system. The more you give in to your desires, the more the desires take over you, and you don't get it out of your system. Instead, you find yourself in addiction, and you forfeit what God has for you later on. You have no idea what God might do through you. Don't trade it for the now. Third myth that we are to reject is I already messed up. So there's no hope for me. I already took the now. There's no hope for me for the later. And that's just not true. Yes, the divorce might be final. The embarrassment that you're facing might be real. The, the pain that, that, that you're feeling, it, it still stings. But none of that, listen to me, none of that is greater than the precious blood of Jesus Christ that bought you. Knowing what you would do, Jesus still bore it and took it to the cross and paid for it. Don't ever believe this right here. There's a repeated phrase in the Old Testament that I love. The phrase goes like this. From this day forward. You see that throughout the Old Testament. From this day forward, from this day forward, from this day forward. The enemy's strategy is to handcuff you to your past. And we deserve it. Some of us keep these, these chains on us. We, we, we screwed up. Yeah, we know that God forgives me, but, but, but you know, we, we don't deserve what God is offering us. And so uh, we, you know, we don't deserve to, to have what, what God has for us today. And so we hold on to these chains. But Christian, I would, I would say to you, have a higher view of Jesus Christ. Value his blood more than you do. It broke the chains of the past, so stop holding on to them. So you can confidently say, all right, from this day forward, there's a mess in the past from this day forward, from this day forward. The enemy wants to use your past against your future. That's their strategy. God wants to use your past for other people's future. So don't stay handcuffed to that past. Take what God has for you. And if you can help those who have the same past as you do, do it. Let God redeem your past. You are not the only one who messed up. In fact, I would say you are signed on right now listening with a bunch of other people who have messed up too. And I believe that God is chomping at the bit to do what he does best, redeem. For who the Son sets free is free indeed. From this day forward, because of Jesus Christ, from this day 
forward. Fact is, this myth would be true. But Jesus came. Don't forget about the Son who sets you free from this day forward. Hey, thanks again for listening. And if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Better yet, hit that share button. Maybe screenshot it, share it with your friends. Thanks again for joining in. And until next time, God bless.